Because I have a dream that my poor little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. I have a dream today. I have a dream that one day little black boys and black girls will be able to join hands with little white boys and white girls as sisters and brothers. I have a dream today. It's Monday, January 21st, and you're listening to the Typed Out Podcast. I'm your host, Nick Polifrone. Every week, Typed Out aims to deliver conversations that seek to expand the boundaries of understanding and acceptance. In today's episode, we are talking dreams, and not just any dream, but the dream of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. And here to do so with me are fellow Typed Out contributors, Spencer Jones and Jazz Amani. So welcome, Jazz, and welcome, Spencer. How are you both? I'm great. How are you? Doing very well. Thanks for having us. Yes. So as usual, this podcast is made possible by Audible, the leader in audiobook content. Spencer, I know that you, like me, love a good paper book. Yes. Yeah. But I do love a good audiobook. Do too, as well. And Jazz, you have a recommendation? Yes, I would recommend Michelle Obama's Becoming. Go get that. Go get that. Yes. That and is... I also recommend Negroland. Who's the... Margot, I forgot her last name, but Negroland is a good book. Yes, check those both out. That's the second recommendation for Michelle Obama's Becoming. And again, if you go to www.audiotrial.com forward slash typed out, you can start your free trial and listen along for free. So... Let's get into an episode that is going to be quite packed with information. The reason why I wanted to talk, well, one about specifically Martin Luther King, because it is Martin Luther King Day, I wanted to do a checkpoint, right, with his dream. And he, the March on Washington was 1963, I believe, August 1963. And now seeing where we are 50 some odd years later. But I also want to ask, because I, I do think that like, especially nowadays, holidays like Martin Luther King Day aren't recognized in the way that they should be. They don't, you know, we just have a tendency of thinking, oh, it's a three-day weekend. Like, oh, what are you doing this weekend? Whatever. And not really recognizing the significance of the day itself, of the movement, of the person who it's named after. And so I really wanted to bring the both of you in to have this conversation and really celebrate Martin Luther King Day, uh, the man himself, and also talk about where are we in 2019 when it comes to civil rights and racial injustice. All right. You want to go for it? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, okay. (laughs) Well, as you said, this is quite a loaded topic. We could sit here for the rest of our lives and it still wouldn't be long enough. Yeah. Um, Have we advanced in some cases? Yes, I can pretty safely use any water fountain I want. I can pretty safely go to just about any lunch counter and be reasonably certain that I'm going to be okay. No one's going to escort me off and cart me off to jail or anything. But as I was saying in our conversation earlier, um, the racism still exists, but it's not quite as overt. You can't necessarily put your finger on it. And on its surface, it looks like it doesn't exist at all, right? So an example of this would be, you know, say police brutality or what's happening in our schools, 
um, with you know children being told if your hair is in dreadlocks, it's unkempt. Mm -hmm. If you have it in a natural fro, just wearing it the way it grows out of your head, not doing anything to it. Go home and, and you know relax your hair, right, to fit some Eurocentric standard. Or go home and just make sure, you know, have your mother comb it out. Even though she did comb it out, but it, it doesn't matter, you know what I mean? So yeah. any means to sort of undermine black people, be they black children or black adults, is still very much going on. And I think in some ways that might be more dangerous because it's so easy to just dismiss it as you're just being, you know, too sensitive. Just, you know, don't wear your hair in dreads. What's the big deal? Yeah. And, you know, and as black people, I think quite a lot of us were very attuned to these microaggressions. And we see that there's something, you know, more sinister um, underneath the surface. Yeah. So we know there's still a problem. Yeah. We have not eradicated it. And this is one thing that we talked about in our panel back in June with RxR when we talked about diversity and inclusion in the workspace was microaggressions. And I think uh, that's a word that a lot of people hear about but aren't entirely sure what a microaggression is. Like, Jazz Spencer, could you define for our listeners what microaggression looks like or sounds like? Microaggression, to me at least, is like you're not blatantly coming out and saying a racist slur or some form of saying or something like that it's just you kind of undermining that person for instance if i was to handle some china and a white person would be like oh girl you don't know how to handle that stuff like that that's kind of like microaggression yeah just kind of like a form of embarrassment without blatantly being out there yeah can i mention another example of course you that can. Had, i mean there, there's so many i mean <laughs> but um, I had an experience at a, a clothing shop. I was I needed to buy some new yoga pants. I was there with a friend of mine who is who's Latino with very very prominent African features. And there was a woman who was helping us there, me in particular. And I get wanting to have good customer service, but this woman was would have to have been sitting on my lap to have been any closer to me. Like, can I help you? Can I help you? Standing outside of the dressing room door. It's like, oh, can I give you this? I mean, maybe this looks better on you. I think your butt would actually look better in this. And I'm not looking. I'm not a confrontational person. So I rocked with it, and I thanked her for her help. But my friend who was there, we talked about this afterwards. He was like, yeah, not only was she, like, right outside of your dressing room door, she was also keeping an eye on me. And I'm just standing here in the corner waiting for you to finish. You know, so that would be like another manifestation of microaggression. She thinks she's being helpful, and that may very well be the case. But it's worth exploring, uh, you know, if I, if I were a white person, would she be quite as on top of me? Would she be worried that I would steal something? I've never stolen a day in my life, you know? So that would be like another... Um, example of a microaggression, I think. Absolutely. And it's I the way that I think about it, because microaggression exists in so many forms and fashions, you know, and it's 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 the undercutting of someone in a way that's not it's it's almost coming back to what you were saying, Spencer, about how racism has gone from being overt to being it's even worse when it's something that becomes hidden and uh in a way that's not something that you can so directly handle and deal with. Because sometimes the more front-facing offenses it's just like you can't help but see that that's what's happening mm -hmm. and it's easier to deal with but when it's so deeply integrated right now coming to our systems like housing and the justice system and other ways in which 
racism has taken a new form or it's always been there, but it's kind of like that's now the ways in which we marginalize people. We need to, as a society, I think, in order to move forward to, again, coming back to Martin Luther King and, and the checkpoint of the dream is we have to look at these things. We, we can't say that they no longer exist. And I know that we, and just before like recording this conversation, one of the things that we were talking about was the mentality of, can't you just get over it already? Now, I think the idea there, even, and I'm just going to speak from someone in the, in the queer community, and it's the idea of like, well, you have what you want already, right? Like you have marriage equality. So what are you, why are you still continuing to show up in the streets and do all these other things? Those advances, and they're not small, don't necessarily say that the movement has been won. The fact that we can share bathrooms and share water fountains and share schools, like that is only one level of a much larger issue. Right. What goes through your mind when you hear somebody say, can't you just get over it already? Or like it's 2019. Fuck no. No, yeah. I was kidding. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, like be real. Um, like let's talk about it. When people say just get over it, I'm just like, Jewish people don't let us forget the Holocaust. And it's almost like when it comes to the black experience, it's like, oh, it that happened so long ago. It never happened. It happened maybe like thousands of years ago. No, it didn't. Maybe like hundreds of years ago. Yeah. It's a part of our history. We were brought here on, like, we didn't want to be brought here. We were forced out of our homes to be here. We were slaves. We get treated like we are the outsider, like we're the alien. And then the product of that, we have the president that we have. So I just feel like when people say to get over it, it's not that easy unless you understand what I go through from day to day, starting from bringing us from our country here, then you can't tell me to forget something like that. Obviously, it's very dismissive. Mm -hmm. It's audacious. I can't imagine saying that to somebody, you know, even though I come from three marginalized groups as someone who's bisexual, as someone who is a woman, as someone who is black, There are still people who rank on lower rungs of the ladder, and I often use this as a metaphor, than I do. Mm -hmm. And I can't imagine turning around and telling them, get over it. Oh, yeah. You know, it's not in me to do that. So as as Jess was saying, slavery was responsible for for building this country. This country was built on blood, sweat, and tears, certainly not just of black people. Um, But we did a lot of this labor. Mm -hmm. And yet this country that we helped to build, that we were forced to build, alienates us, as you said, mistreats us, sees us as less than, sees us as the other, doesn't want to, you know, listen to us when we air our grievances and tell them, well, we're having these problems. Why aren't you listening? It's, it's, It's really, you know, it's really a shame. And then to have this administration continue to fan the flames. Mm-hmm. Now, I think to suggest that because we had a black president before him, oh, we've come so far. And that's yeah. a very easy comment for people to make. I've heard people say that. And on the one hand, you say, okay, history was made. I cried when Obama was first elected. I was still in college. I was like, wow, you know, my dad is in his 70s. Like, I never thought I'd live to see the day, right? Yeah. But then you see how we did a complete 180. Mm-hmm to elect the man that we have now who has maligned every group you can think of from trans people, women, Mexicans, or the Latino community Mm -hmm. in general. There's no group that has not been 
um, the focal point of his wrath. Yeah. And so he has created this environment where people feel emboldened to make these statements and know that there won't be any repercussions for them. I believe that while um, Obama was in office, people were as not as well. Yeah, they were as racist as they are today with making like caricatures of him and his wife to Trump even saying we need his birth certificate. We need to figure out he's not from here. Right. Illegitimizing him. Right. Exactly. And I feel like once the Obamas finished their eight years, it just brought out more of that racism being like, oh, we need to not let this um, happen again. If a woman comes into office, that's craziness. Oh, yeah. And. The fact that this man is in office now just shows that we really aren't that far off from when Martin Luther King had that dream. Yeah. I feel like black people, people of color, period, are being tolerated. And it's just not, it's still not an inclusive country at all. And I want to talk about how there's a huge difference between tolerance and acceptance. Mm -hmm. Tolerance says that, okay, you can let them in the room, but they can only be here for 30 minutes. And don't touch anything. And don't touch anything. Acceptance says... Not only can you be in the room, but you have every right to be in the room. Right. And also get this person a drink. Yeah, right. <laughs> and, and you have a voice in this room. Absolutely. A seat at the table. Right. And it goes even further beyond that, right? Ac- yeah. Acceptance isn't just the end point because the end point to me is equity where everyone has a fair shot at every opportunity and we know that to not be true in this society i think the term especially following trump's election was white lash i think was the word was that it like when people when white people like lashed back because of having obama as president i think that was the term that was used to kind of say like this is white people's way of going back to a time before obama because another thing that i want to address here is like when you are part of a marginalized community or a minority group, being one singular representative of that group, suddenly you are like held accountable for your entire community, right? So it's like we have Barack Obama as our president, but it's just like he gets all the onus as a black man for the black community. And I say that in the way that we would say, oh, well, Obama did this and he did that and he made this country that and he did this. And as far as I'm concerned, Obama was dad. Right. Forever my president. Exactly. Forever. Michelle, my first lady. Yes. Yes, yes Flotus. Uh, the one and only. Yes, happy birthday. Yes, yeah. Capricorn mama. <laughs> There's a few things that we obviously need to get into, but I feel like one thing that you cannot talk about, you can't talk about racism and not talk about white supremacy. Right. Mm-hmm. I've had my eyes open to a way of looking at racism through white supremacy, right? Because when you say white supremacy, as a white man, that's me. It turns the lens inward, and that's where it needs to go. You need to start looking, and this goes back to my conversation last week with Winston, where it's like, when we talk about toxic masculinity, as men, even though I'm a gay man, it's still in there. You still have to turn that lens inward and see, how am I being complicit in this, right? The systemic oppression that's happening. Like, where is it that I, as a white person, receive privilege that is undue, that was given to me just because of the color of my skin, right? And so that's something that I think that when we talk about racism, we definitely need to talk about white supremacy because when you start looking at yourself and looking inward, that's how the real change happens. You have to see how you're upholding something. Granted, yeah, the average person In fact, everybody today did not create white supremacy. We are just products of it. But that means that somehow... It predates us. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And so the thing is, like, we perpetuate it because we don't challenge it. And so now we have to challenge it. And I consistently say that every generation 
the uh, responsibility of every generation is to challenge the things that have come before in society that don't work, where equality isn't present, where equity isn't present, and do the work to change it. And if we don't do that, we're not doing our job, right? Because the job is to leave the world a better place, not the way that you found it. Whenever I talk to people about turning, you said turning the lens inward and having those uncomfortable conversations and looking at our own privilege. I always use the example of a conversation I had with a friend of mine who said to me, he's like, okay, yes, you're black, you're a woman, you're bisexual, but you still have privilege. And my initial reaction was like, what are you talking about? Like, no way, blah, blah, blah. And he said to me, well, you certainly have privilege compared to, say, a transgender person because you're not transgender. And I really, I had to move away from him for a little while so I could really process what he was saying. And I'm just like, holy shit, you're a thousand percent correct. I don't have to worry about possibly losing my life in a bathroom, okay? I don't have to worry about, you know, somebody barging in on me while I'm using the bathroom or, you know, losing my life or whatever variation of things that unfortunately transgender people do experience. Um, it's, It's reached epidemic proportions at this point. So, you know, privilege does take many different forms and I do think it takes a degree of humility to be able to own that however difficult you have it, there's always somebody who has it worse. Yeah. And as I mentioned in our previous episode, like I feel like privilege is, it's the gateway into inclusion and acceptance, right? Because when you realize where where you have privilege, you begin to look at like being in the room. Okay, who's not in the room and why are they not here? And again, I, I mentioned this in, in my podcast with Winston, so I don't want to rehash it, but it's it's the same thing of like, when we begin to look at the things that are automatically given to us based off of whether it be gender, the color of our skin, anything that is from society bestowed upon us just because of the way that society has been structured thus far, Mm -hmm. if we begin to look at those things and seeing how we are afforded possibility and who is not because they don't have those things or they're different from that, that's where we can begin to actually make change and see why isn't this person here and what is keeping them from getting there. Well, this is one of the things that I actually wanted to thank you for because you could have just as well just on this podcast by yourself. And this is what I think as a white person or whatever, and it wouldn't quite have the same resonance, right? It brings back this, um, I remember around Halloween, there was a panel with Megan Kelly and they're talking about blackface as a costume. Mm. There was not a single no, black person on that panel, Mm-mm. not one but they cut to some black folks in the audience. And I remember seeing sis in the background there, like, are you serious? And Megan Kelly actually just say, well, when I was a child, uh, blackface was totally okay. And she wound up getting canned for making that comment. And the woman in the background, you saw her face say, wow, she really actually said that. Yeah. All right, Megan Kelly would have been a child around the 60s. So you know, no, that was not acceptable. Has it ever been? Can yeah, we just like, I mean, <laughs> has it ever been acceptable? Still, That's a no. But they still do it in colleges too, like for Cinco de Mayo and things like that. Like they literally put on blackface to fit the costume or the holiday. And it's just like, you guys really think it's okay? So if I show up in whiteface, y'all not gonna feel some type of way? Right. So it's, it's just ridiculous. It's a manifestation of what we were talking about before we started the podcast, and that is picking and choosing the parts of blackness that are most palatable. Mm-hmm. And that can be an appearance. Like, I saw a great comic about this. I love her ass, I'll take that. <laughs> I love her lips, I'll take that. I love her innate sense of rhythm, mm-hmm. I'll take that. 
Oh, wait, wait, wait. You know, being stopped and frisked and, you know, and, and being pulled over for no reason. No, y'all can keep that. I'm good. I'm good. Yeah. I'm going to hold on to, you know, because, you know, I'm going to just use the quite well-known quote and uh, forgive my language here. This is not a word I typically use. <laughs> Everybody wants to be a nigger, but not everyone really wants to be a nigger. Right. I was just... <laughs> so, you know, and it... And if I can also repeat what I had said earlier to you, one thing I have observed and what my, I've heard my gay male friends in particular say yeah. this to me, they're fine with us if we're stripping for them. They're fine with us if we're doing their hair. They're fine with us if we're helping them pick out their wardrobe. Yeah. Right. But the moment we start talking about our sexuality or who we are as people and what's lacking, what we're missing as a community, yeah. it's radio silence. Yeah. Tuning out. Yeah. La, 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 right? Yeah. So One thing that I want to also draw on is the title of this episode is called The Only American Dream. Because the thing is, is that when we fight for human rights and civil rights is absolutely human rights, right. it's across the board. It's the same thing for the queer community. It's the same thing for our Latinx community, our trans community. Everybody wants to be treated as equal. Right. So when we look at any movement, how much they influence one another. So it's like you can't just take the things that you enjoy from one community and leave the rest behind when that shit is actually the hardest stuff. Right. That too comes from a place of privilege. Right. That's appropriation. Right. Oh, appropriation. <laughs> Hello, Hollywood. Do we want to talk about cultural appropriation yes, or is that a whole episode? Appropriation. <laughs> take it away, Jess. So going back to what Spencer said, they love us, but they don't want to be us. They love what we produce. They love our slang. They love how we dress. They love how we look body-wise. They love our tan skin, even though they hate us for being black or mm -hmm. darker skin. It'll be comments like, I wish I had your complexion. Right, exactly. And going to a PWI, a predominant um, white institute, I've had white girls come up to me and be like, oh my God, coming back from the summer, being like, oh my God, I got so tan. I'm almost as black as you. Are you serious? I I've swear on everything. And it's like, okay, well, you wanted to get as dark as me, but you don't really love me or my experience. You want to curl your hair and make it look like it's naturally curly, but you say that I need to straighten mine. Yeah. You tell me that you love my curves and all that, but then you talk about how skinny is beauty. White, pale skin, skinny is beauty yeah. if you search beauty on google right now i promise you you will see a skinny white blonde woman yeah which is crazy especially because a lot of white women try to emulate black beauty from our music we've had a lot of influence with music we influenced rock and roll we've influenced pop even yeah and jazz like jazz, i think of like exactly. miles davis who like had five movements in right, music like, right and you still can't get jiggy with us like <laughs> you still can't hang out with us you still can't listen to our voices yeah and it goes back to what you said nick about having a seat at the table a lot of the times too it's like people especially at corporations want to be like oh let's have black people in the room but yeah. not necessarily have a voice yeah um and it's almost like they're trying to fit some sort of quota another part of cultural appropriation is in the workplace stealing ideas from people of color mm -hmm. and then running with it as if it was your own and i've seen plenty of that what do we feel about like beyonce 
in the sense that because I feel like there is a lot of white women and gay men, white gay men love Beyonce and I'm one of them. I fucking love Beyonce, but it's like at the same point in time, what about Beyonce do you love? Like, do you love what she symbolizes or do you love everything that comes with her, which is female empowerment, like black female empowerment. But at the same point in time, she represents being fabulous and all of these things and the superstar. But at what point does she kind of become emblematic of appropriation and not fully embracing of like the black community, like supporting everything that comes along with it? You know, I think of it where it's like going to soul cycle classes and jamming out to Beyonce, but it's like, okay, but that's all well and wonderful. But what are you doing outside of the classroom? Right. You know, like there's so much more to her music and any artist of color. So is that like a thing or am I running off on a tangent on that one? I I think that's like definitely a thing. If you play Lemonade and especially if you've seen the music video, it is unapologetically black. Blackness. Blackness galore. Yeah. And you, I don't think it's possible to divorce the song from its meaning. Mm -hmm. She was talking about Hurricane Katrina. Mm -hmm. Um, She was talking about her roots, right? And and just black beauty and all its variations. And even the the black female experience, she talks about, like, there's the quote in there from Malcolm X about how the most underserved person in America is the black woman. Right. You know, like, she even talks about, like, within the black community, what it means to be a black woman Mm -hmm. and all the stresses that come with that. And I feel when she was in Destiny's Child and when she first sprung off in her solo career, like, the earliest days of it, more people were... Real, you know, willing to rock with her. But right. the moment with the Super Bowl halftime performance where she was, uh, you know, bringing in imagery of uh, from the Black Panthers and everything, it's like, whoa, whoa, like, what are you doing? Go back to doing what I'm comfortable with you, what I'm comfortable seeing you do. Yeah. Don't, once you start delving into this racing, I, I don't want to have anything to do with you. Right. Yeah. All of a sudden it's like, let's boycott Beyonce. Let's stop buying her albums. Right. You know? Good luck. Yeah. <laughs> I also think that it had a lot to do with Blue, her daughter, to be honest. I feel like after Blue was born, a lot of people said a lot of things about Blue's hair, about how she looked. And granted, um, when you look at Beyonce, she has blonde hair. She has lighter eyes. She mm. has light skin. Mm. So she's easily going to be accepted in the black, white, Latina, Latino, any type of group. Like yeah. she can easily be accepted. Whereas her daughter, like, you can clearly see that her daughter isn't a mixed child. She is a black child. Yeah. And I feel like with her coming out with Lemonade, it was like a statement like, don't get it confused. I'm a black female. Yeah. And this is what we go through. This is what it looks like. Having some of her scenes at a plantation and things like that, like, it showed, like, I'm black as fuck. That You can't mistake me for anything else. Talking about her Creole heritage and how her father is African-American. It was very important. When she released that, I fell out. I was like, yes, queen. Thank you. Thank you. Because a lot of people get confused about who she is and what her background is all the time. Right. I just happened to be watching uh, Oprah's commencement speech Mm -hmm. at Spelman College just before this. And she was talking about finding purpose in the things that you do. Like, go out and be a lawyer. Go out and be a performer. But Mm -hmm. what is the purpose behind it? And so... Again, with Beyonce being the performer, the megastar that she is, there's still a responsibility, I think, to make aware the struggles of the community that she's representative Mm -hmm. of, you know? The same thing with me as a gay man. Like, my thing is, my whole advocacy is to help advance the queer movement and other movements in the way that I can, you know, as being an ally. But it makes me think of this version of Beyonce Mm -hmm. and then 
Nina Simone. Like oh, how Nina. Nina Simone was just so inhabited in her voice because of. <laughs> Go ahead, yes. Spencer. Now I had to fall over to one side here because Nina Simone just like. Uh, I'm sorry. Go on. No, amazing. but like, She's yeah, yeah, but just how she was like so talented. Yes. But used that talent to advance the movement to to call out the injustices that were happening in the movement, and it's like sometimes it it brings you to a whole other place when you have something like music that is so haunting, and you hear the 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 meaning and the lyricism behind it. The pain. The pain. Absolutely. Like sometimes more than just having conversations when you have music and rhythm that go to things you kind of get it a little bit more yeah you know you experience it differently but as we have this conversation i feel like there's one major thing they're all major things but another thing that is certainly worth talking about is racial literacy like how do we begin to bring ourselves closer to one another and like how do we equip people that don't uh suffer from racial injustice to talk about racial injustice. (laughs) (laughs) I'm smiling here because there's a lot to tackle. Um, I think there's a combination of things that needs to happen. Um, It needs to happen, rather. Um, I think what we're doing now, we're just a drop in the bucket. But I think this, you know, with Jazz and I both being people of color, um, I think it's important to remember that we should be the ones leading the conversation. Whatever the marginalized group in question is, they should be. If we're talking about, you know, transgender rights, they should be leading the conversation. I want to see Laverne Cox. I want to see Carmen Carrera. I want to see the trans folks that are not famous. Mm -hmm. Lead the conversation on your own struggle, right? But at the same time, people who are not of that group should not necessarily expect us to always provide them with the information. We live in a digital age now. You can go to the library if you want. Yep, they still exist, Right, they still do exist, right? There's also Google. There there are so many resources for you to educate yourself. And I also, you know, I need people to understand, you know, um, that sometimes I get tired of having to have these conversations. Sometimes I want to talk about something that requires minimal brain activity, like watching the most mindless shit on television, yeah. right? I don't always want to talk about social activism and my experience as a black person all the time. It is on you sometimes to do some of the work to unlearn your own inherent prejudices, yeah. to acknowledge your privilege and see what you can do to use it as a tool to advance humanity. I also find that, that there are some people who just don't know where to start. Yeah. And I've had a conversation before where someone also said that, like, it's not our job to try to fix or share our experience with people who don't understand. Yeah. And I think it is partially our duty to do that because a lot of people aren't going to look out for microaggressions or going to look at what we've experienced or try to even search for that. I think if we constantly speak out, our voices will be heard. Yeah. It's just that we need to have that seat at the table, like I said, to be able to step our foot into those rooms and yes. say those things. Not just because you want to like meet a quota of how many black people you want to get in the room, right? but to actually hear our voices and hear our pain and hear and just listen to what we have to say yeah. and how we can all come together and bring about change. Absolutely. And the other thing is like, I want to talk about that expectation of, like, oh, please inform me. Tell me about your experience so that I can better help you. Again, being within a minority group, it's like 
this shit is every day, you know, depending on which community you're a part of. And sometimes it happens to be intersectionality. When you are faced with that every day, when you walk out your door every day, yeah, you do get tired. You have to be on guard. Exactly. And it's like, it's not my job, especially now when there are things like libraries, when there are things like Google, when there are things like TED Talks, y'all, where people are actually dedicating space to these conversations. Go to that. Don't go to your friend and be like, oh, okay, so tell me what it's like to be gay. Tell me what it's like to be trans. Tell me what it's like to be black. Don't put that onus and expectation on somebody to have to inform you. Like, be your own scholar. Do the work yourself. Coming back to racial literacy, there are people that have just zero exposure to have these conversations. And the other thing that I do want to talk about that I think is so important is that it is not just up to our black community to tell their children about racism. Please listen along to that, white people. Like, tell... Dear white people. Dear white people. Dear white people, please (laughs) teach your children about racism. Yes. Please. Because the simple fact is that... Yes, thank you. (laughs) (laughs) Chazamani on the mic, y'all. Because they get taught how to be racist within their home. It's not passed down. Like, it's not inherited. They hear their parents say certain things, and then they carry that on to them to school. Yes. That's a form of microaggression right Exactly. There. When grandma's being racist at the table, somebody shut her up. Exactly. Like, if, you're, if you hear your white grandmother saying, I can't believe this. Beep. Right. It was an office. He didn't belong there. Shut your grandmother up. Right. Be like, <laughs> grandma. Like, shut your ass up. <laughs> like, Wait, but in the 50s, it was okay to say that. What do you mean? Shut up. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> right. <laughs> so it's like those types of things, like. Please, parents of today's generation, please teach your children that we are all human beings, that we all deserve to be treated with respect. Yes. Not because we're not supposed to be treated just because someone looks a certain way, we have to treat them this way. Or if you see a black person walking down the street and you're walking the same street as them, um, side of the street as them, go on the opposite side. Like, teach your children that humans are humans right please it's very important intersectionality is absolutely a thing say it you can (laughs) you can pretty much look at every struggle that most groups have been through and they all converge Mm -hmm. at one point Mm -hmm. but having said that i think it's important to maintain focus for example if i'm going to an event where we're looking to raise money for leukemia research Imagine if I go up to that podium, I've been arranged to speak at this event on leukemia, and I start talking about the horrors of Alzheimer's, okay? No one's disputing that Alzheimer's is a horrible disease, right. but the focus is leukemia. Right. right. All right? So that, that's one of my major issues with, with All Lives Matter. And again, it's, oh. it, it's, it yes. seems Let's innocuous. It. Yes, like it's, it seems innocuous, and you know, I see the point. But All Lives Matter did not exist as a slogan until Black Lives Matter Mm -hmm. came out first. And if all lives truly matter, then Mm -hmm. Black Lives Matter would not have to. Right. Okay? We're not saying we matter more than anybody else. Mm -hmm. We're saying we matter just as much. Mm -hmm. The unsaid word after matter is to, Mm -hmm. or also, or just as much. Mm -hmm. But somehow some people have twisted this into us asserting ourselves as being better than somebody else, being better than them. And that's just not the case. You know, it's, it's not. So again, just like maintain focus, honor 
what the discussion point is yeah. and don't try to derail. Yeah. Our listeners, the folks listening along, listen to the people that are talking. Whenever conversations like this happen, listen. And I get it. It's going to be uncomfortable. In fact, maybe listening to this episode right now is uncomfortable. But why is it uncomfortable? Like lean into that discomfort and see what it is that is drawing something up for you and say, I don't like feeling like this. And the fact that I feel like this might be emblematic of something at large that I do need to look at. And so like I think of there was a article that I read with um, so Jodi Picoult, who's an author, uh, and she was talking about how I forget exactly where she was, but she was with her daughter I think at the time and a black man walked past and her daughter who was like four or five said something to her mom and her mom like froze up like Jodi Picoult didn't know what to say and so the article was actually her kind of coming to terms that she she didn't she wasn't having those conversations with her children she wasn't talking about race and fair treatment or equal treatment or just even like expanding your view of people in a way that helps her daughter serves her daughter grow up to be a more inclusive person right and it's it kind of goes the same way in people of color's household we get taught about race really early yeah we get talked to about how you're going to be in certain spaces where you're not welcomed where you will be stared at like you're a part of a zoo people will want to touch you touch your hair do all these things and if we can get that pep talk i'm sure that white families can give the pep talk on there are people out there who are different from you yeah who look different than you yeah it doesn't mean that they're less than you it just means that we're people are going to be different yeah and thank god for it yes because if we were all the same what a boring place to be in right like this would be a boring place to live yeah we wouldn't move forward we wouldn't progress we wouldn't have different genres of music, different genres of film. Which are all inspired by these movements, by exactly. the way. Like, the whole thing is all about human expression, exactly. right? And the things that we go through, the struggle for meaning in our lives and acceptance in our lives. And the ways that creativity creates things like music and dance and art. Like, all of it comes through the human experience. Right. And so every single thing is trying to tell one of these stories or all of these stories because they're all one and the same. Right, but sometimes um, when certain stories are told, they're not being told by that group. Yes. And um, Huge other issue. Exactly. So it's a lot of times the black experience is being displayed through a white lens and it's not giving you the full story or the full pain behind it. Yeah. And that's why it's so important for people of color, people in marginalized groups, period, to tell their own stories through film, through music, through whatever art that they, that God has like blessed them with, with gifts. Like yeah. you need to tell your own story. Don't be afraid to. Yeah. I mentioned this to you earlier, Nick, as well. Um, you know, whenever you have another group attempt to tell someone else's mm -hmm. story, especially if they are of a dominant group, mm -hmm. invariably it descends into parody. And I think this is part of the reason why, you know, quite a few people say in the transgender community were really upset that Scarlett Johansson, I think, had been approached to play a trans character. Yeah. Or, really? yeah, mm -hmm. or Jared Leto, also in a millionaire buyer's club, I yes. think also played a transgender woman. And you have so many capable, talented trans actors and actresses out there that you could have chosen to play this role. And you've just completely shut them out. 
Or, you know, if I were to go by what Hollywood tells me, as far as the black experience goes, okay, it goes from slavery and Jim Crow and back to slavery Mm -hmm. and back to Jim Crow. Mm -hmm. No commentary on us being royalty. Mm-hmm. No commentary on us being, you know, superhero films. They said for the longest time that a mostly or totally black cast could not be a blockbuster film. And Black Panther completely slayed it, slayed it, <laughs> blew it out of the water. But it was so much more than just a Marvel film. It was so much more than a superhero film. Mm-hmm. I saw that twice in three days. It was so deep. Yeah. It was so deep. It was really touching on some things. Mm-hmm. You had a complex villain. Mm-hmm. Who I think in a lot of respects, you could relate to where he was coming yeah. from. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. was not the kind of villain where you could say flat out, you're despicable, you're a horrible mm-hmm. person. You can look at Killmonger and say, I get where your anger comes from. Mm-hmm. You know, he looks at, at you know Black Panther and looks at all the people living in Wakanda saying, you have this vibranium, you have all this privilege, you have all of this wealth. Why are you not helping people who look like you here right. struggling on earth? And that's... That's very much a conversation that I think we need to be having sort of outside of the fantasy realm. Mm. So, I mean, that that was just a brilliant, brilliant movie. Yeah, I think it also spoke on the black experience within the black community, that movie. Mm. Like, it talked about how important it is to have black fathers in the home, to teach their boys, to teach their young daughters how to become decent human beings. Yeah. It talks about, was it Killmonger? Um, Michael B. Jordan's character? Yeah, Killmonger. Yeah, Killmonger. I'm sorry, I'm fuzzy. <laughs> yeah, um, <laughs> with him losing his father so young, it created this monster yeah. because they were living in an urban inner city community where they were selling drugs, things like that, even though he died by his own brother's hand. But all in all, like because of things like that where black people aren't accepting other black people just because we're from different parts of the world. A lot of times people say that Africans feel like they're better than African-Americans. A lot of times people say that West Indians forget that they're black. A lot of people say that African-Americans are ghetto, loud, all these things. But we all come from the same place. And I feel like that movie really unpacked a lot of things. It may have went over a lot of people's heads but the people who were paying attention and like um sort of said before that black people pay attention to microaggressions we pay attention to things like that too oh my god the last line that he had in that movie of like just yes. before he yeah just before uh, i can't remember if he was like already injured at that point i think yeah, he was yeah. and it was just kind of like his bury me in the sea with my ancestors because they knew that death was better than eternal servitude or you something better like that yeah. <laughs> something you like that I, that was paraphrased but yeah that was basically and i think it also shows that black people are not a monolith right you know there is disparity in opinion there's disparity in wealth there's disparity in experience you know, and I'm, I'm assuming people have seen Black Panther by now. And if you haven't seen it, then turn down the it's volume. Yeah. It's on, right? Okay. Yeah, go see it. But yeah, yeah, really, just go see it. But the interesting thing is, and I think they're go- probably going to explore this in the sequel, is now that, you know, T'Challa has taken Killmonger's advice and is like, okay, well, let's, let's, you know, let's introduce Vibranium here and let's see what we can do. Mm-hmm. You know, I think the question then becomes what's going to happen 
with the vibranium? Is it going to be used to help the black community or is it going to be stolen by white people for them to benefit? And this is a narrative we've seen time and time again. Black people come up with a style of music or a style of dance. Mm -hmm. And white folks take it and try to rebrand it. Fortnite is a perfect example. Oh, Jesus. Okay. Really? They, yes. Yeah. They took the Millie Rock, mm-hmm. rebranded it, and thought they were being slick. The Carlton. Right. Yeah. And yeah. And Millie Rock. And, the dances. Uh, yes. Yeah. Okay. Gotcha. 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 Right. And then the rapper came up and was like, this is my dance. I never saw one cent for it. Right. Or there was this video in circulation of this, uh, I think she's Scandinavian, I'm not sure what Scandinavian country. She's standing in front of Marcy Projects, and she starts doing the Harlem Shake. And it's supposed to be in honor of Jay-Z, who was originally from the Marcy Projects, I believe. And people, on the one hand, were saying, it's just a dance. And in that context, it becomes much more than a dance. Mm -hmm. She's not doing... Uh, the Harlem Shake in Sweden someplace. She's not doing the Harlem Shake in a gym. She specifically chose the Marcy Project. So she thinks she is paying homage to arguably one of the greatest rappers, I think, of all time. She is making a mockery of the people living in that establishment. And it's just another example of her you know, taking something that is palatable to her the Harlem Shake, which is a black dance. And I'm just going to stand here, you know, in front of the projects and, you know, with my blonde hair and start doing this. And I think it's cute. And people were calling her out on it. Like, this is totally inappropriate. Not saying white folks can't do the Harlem Shake, but be cognizant of where you're doing things. There's right. a time and a place. Right. And listen to the people who live in that complex who are telling you you're acting inappropriately. Right. Coming back to... Martin Luther King. What do you think he would think of the times that we are living in in 2019? That there's more work that needs to be done. So much more work. Yeah. That we need to just not be tolerated, but we need to be one human race. Yeah. Instead of just seeing like, oh, there's white people, there's Latino people. There are white people, but we're just all one human race. Yeah. That we all need to work together to make the world a better place. Not just America, but the world. Yeah, I would agree with that. I think he would definitely say, no, my dream has not fully been realized. Mm-hmm. Parts of it, perhaps, but y'all need to get it together. Yeah. <laughs> just pick up the pace here. Come yeah. on, right? One of the things I've noticed, like when I hear some white folks talk about Martin Luther King, is they, they whitewash the message. And they're just like, well, he was saying he wants equality for everybody. And I mean, yes, he did. I do believe that's what he stood for. But he was very aware of how black people were being treated. He Mm -hmm. himself was incarcerated for just peaceful demonstration. He saw what happened with black people were having dogs sicked on them or people planting the KKK planting bombs in black churches. Right. So it was, it was very obvious that, that black people were really suffering, and that's how he rose to prominence. He used his voice to say, look, this is what's happening to our community. So while on the one hand you could say Martin Luther King was a staunch defender of human rights, it's also important for people to acknowledge that, that he is ours as black people. And I think it's important to also acknowledge the lesser-known speeches and things that he's written. We all know I have a dream. Absolutely brilliant speech. But the reason why I think that resonates is because it has such a kumbaya quality. 
it doesn't necessarily challenge people to look inwards. It doesn't challenge people to really have those uncomfortable conversations. Now, letter written in a Birmingham jail is a part of it where he starts talking about the white moderate, which is basically the kind of white person who considers themselves an ally, but basically saying, I agree with your goal, but I don't agree with the methods of how you wish to go about obtaining that goal, which in other words means I'm not going to get my hands dirty or I'm only going to get them only so dirty because I don't want you know, I don't want to get in trouble. I don't really want to do that deep labor. Like, don't say to me that you're an ally. Don't tell me that you care about my plight as a black person. And you, if you're not willing to do the work, right. I'm not interested in the lip service. I'm about that action. Right. What are you doing? Are you using your social media platforms? Are you talking to people? Are you checking your own? Are you doing what Jane Elliott has been doing for upwards of 50 years? She is. With her, she, I mean, I love her. Yes. With the blue eye experiment. She's been doing that for decades. Mm -hmm. She would be an example in my book of an ally. Yes. You know, so it's not, yeah, it's not enough to just say, I care. You need to do more than that. And as far as I'm concerned, you shouldn't be using the word ally if you're not putting anything into action. Because to be an ally is, it's a verb. Like you actually have to do something. Like it's not just a noun that you're like, oh yeah, let me get my little pin and wear that. Like you actually have to do something. It even comes down to where we started this conversation, microaggressions. Being the one to tell grandma to eat another slice of pie instead right. of like spewing her racist hate. Stuff it, grandma. <laughs> yeah, have another slice of turkey. Right, or people using as an excuse, oh, she's of another generation where this was permissible right. and so on. That may very well be the case, but I do believe that each of us is responsible for our own evolution. Yes. Okay, so I look at things that I said 10, 15 years ago, and I'm like, yeah, that was a trashy comment. That was coming from an uninformed place. Yeah. I was in a less evolved place. And now I look 10, 15 years later where I am at 31. I have not arrived. I don't think yeah. anyone fully arrives. But am I in a better place than I was 10, 15 years ago? Yeah, I think so. And don't ever for a second think that you can't evolve. Because if you're not in a continual mm-hmm. state of evolution, why are you alive? Mm-hmm. This totally just reminded me of another one of our favorite loves, Mr. Leo Rising. Yes, put something, we miss you, Leo. He just put something on his Instagram that was saying like, it's okay to say that you now know better than you did before. Right. That's growth. Right. I think there's such a fear of being wrong or having once partaken in something. And it's just like, no, grow, grow, because that's what we do as people. Like, right. it's okay to say that I now know better and what I was saying, doing, or perpetuating was bad. Mm-hmm. It's okay to do that. And I think that more people should feel comfortable with that vulnerability mm-hmm. and saying that I used to do that, but I... I no longer do, or I now have the insight as to why that wasn't okay. Right, and then you learn from your own growth so you can pass it down to other people. Absolutely. And don't necessarily look for cookies for doing it. Yes. Yes. Cookies, you know, basically meaning it could could be a literal cookie, (laughs) or it could be acknowledgement from the group that you are purporting to be an ally for. They may not necessarily thank you, and frankly, they're not obligated to do it. You shouldn't necessarily be looking for that thanks. You should be doing it not for thanks, not for cookies. You should be doing it because you want to be a decent person. Yeah. Right? You know, like I, the white friends that I have and I hear what they say about things like race and I, I, I thank them because I'm just like, not because I have to. Right. Because I've, I've, they're at my table. They're in my orbit. I love them. I'm close to them. 
And I'm just like, thank you. Yes, you get it to the extent a white person can. And I appreciate that. Yeah. It's a start, right? So yeah, sometimes you do things without expectation of, of material rewards or without the expectation of, of, of being thanked. Just do it because it's the right thing to do. Right. To me, it's just like loyalty and friendship. It's yeah. like just having a conversation recently with a friend where she was like, I feel like I'm not supporting you. I'm like, are you kidding me? You care about my well-being. You're checking in on me. Like you're supportive of me. As far as I'm concerned, you're there for me when I right. need you to be. Yeah. And it's not a matter of, yeah, obviously you say thanks, but my thing on the other side of it is I will do that for you because that's how friendship works. It's not always to convenience and it's not always about saying like, well, give me compliments and say thank you and do all of these things. No, when you become a part of my circle, that's what we do. We fight for one another and it's not about saying thank you. It's about doing the right thing. Yeah. You know, this also makes me think of there is a great workbook out there for my fellow white people. It's called Me and White Supremacy by Layla F. Saad. And she talks about being a good ancestor. It's not about being thanked. It's not about, oh yes, I'm doing this thing. And let me tell all of my friends of color that, yeah, I'm a good person. No, it's about getting deep and going inside and seeing how you, again, are perpetuating behavior or complicit in behavior. And so I definitely recommend everybody going to meandwhitesupremacy.com and checking out that workbook because it's necessary. It's necessary work. It's hard. Again, it's uncomfortable and it sucks because the, the benefit is a stronger you and a stronger society. And again, change the world in which you live in for the better. I think any growth that is worth it, that is important, is going to be painful in places. Yeah. You could use, even when talking about working out at the gym, how do you become stronger by pushing your body past its limits, which in many cases are self-imposed limits, you know? Um, I also wanted to mention something that I had said earlier as well, I'll reiterate it. When we were talking about the need for having what's called safe spaces. Yeah. Right? Yes. And where does this come from? And why is there a need for having them? I remember going to an event at Medgar Evers College shortly after Trump was elected, and the focus was the black community in the era of Trump. What is going to be our game plan as a people moving forward under this administration, under this man in particular, who has shown himself to be hostile towards black people for decades? I mean, this is nothing new. So I had a, a, a white friend of mine, he saw the event on Facebook and he asked me, he's like, can I go to this with you? And I said, I can't tell you not to go. That's not in my authority to do. If you're asking my opinion, I do think you should sit this one out. Because as a white man, you have access to the world. Yeah, every space. All right? Every, every space, space is yours. You are of the privileged group. You know, you have hit the lottery as it relates to privilege. Me as a black person comparatively, I have to navigate the world in a very different way than you do. And I would prefer at this time for just a few hours just to have this conversation with other black people without having a white person there. And he's the kind of person who's like, you know what, thank you so much for giving me that insight. I will absolutely just refrain from going to this event, but if there are other events that I can go to, you know, maybe we can go together or whatever. And I appreciate that. But sometimes you have some people that because they've had access to the world all of these years to suddenly be told, no, this space is not for you, then they want to scream oppression, as right. if this is somehow comparable to hundreds and more years of systemic racism. It is not comparable. It's so insulting. You know, you're comparing a paper cut to a D. 
deep-rooted, rotting gash. They're not comparable, you know? So I think, you know, there are spaces where I think all of us can come together and have these discussions, but there are also spaces where some members of marginalized groups may want to just hang out and rock with people like them, and I think that should be acceptable too. This is, again, another thing that we talked about where it's like, well, why don't black people include white people if they want us to get move along forward. and yeah, move forward? Okay. The thing is, is that these resources are out there. As you just prefaced with the two groups, there's one that is exclusive to the black community, and then there are ones that are dedicated to these conversations. Look for the ones that are dedicated to those racial inclusive conversations that say, yes, come allies, people that want to know, that want to help, that want to be a part of. Look for those. Again, they're, the resources are out there for you, but the expectation that you should be allowed into these spaces that are meant for certain communities, again, that's operating through privilege, but it makes me think of ERGs, yes. and which are created for generally representational groups within a, a company. Just in case anybody doesn't know what an ERG is, it's an employee resource group. Thank you, Jeff. You're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> That's like a, uh, I feel like a maybe a millennial buzzword or phrase. Yeah. I remember, because uh, Jazz and I used to be coworkers, somebody asked me, well, like, why oh, can't I have... Oh, yes. uh, Somebody was saying, well, why can't I have a straight white male ERG? And I was like, oh, God. Your whole life is an ERG. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> Like, you've had the all-white boys club, and it usually doesn't end well right. for anybody else. Look who's president. Yeah. Okay, that's it. I mean, that's, again, it's like, we're not trying to... I don't know, it's just facts is what it is. Yeah. It's yeah. just facts. Yeah. I appreciate people who do want to be allies within the group, but as soon as they are trying to take reign over it, it's kind of like, all right, get out. Like, come on. Right. Like, we, that's the whole problem. That's why we have ERGs. We're trying to have a safe space where we can talk about what we're going through without being looked at crazy. And we're also trying to create initiatives so that our voices can be heard more so that we're included in the same spaces as you are. Right. Not for you to dominate. And the other thing there is like, again, just truth. It's mm -hmm. truth, right? Is that generally, historically, people have been part of the problem, right? So like <laughs> racism exists because of white supremacy. Exactly. So it's just like white supremacy has been the problem so it's like you're inviting the problem into the space right. and it's just like it's hard to get over that so sometimes you need that exclusive space the same thing with like a heteronormative society mm -hmm. like we need a, a space that is dedicated to the queer community so that we as that collective can talk about things without the historically present problem there mm -hmm. it's how do we handle that issue going forward there's just always the right time and place to get people involved. And that's for anyone listening who is curious about that. That's how that works. Yeah. Well, also, I think, you know, World Pride is coming up. Yes, and it also coincides years. with the 50th anniversary of Stonewall, I believe, in New York is yes. hosting World Pride. And I think now more than ever, it's important to point out the focus of the Pride Parades Yes, some people think it's just one big party, you know, Mardi Gras beads and minimal clothing and all the rest. And is there a festive component? Absolutely, that's what parades are. But let's not lose focus, and I talk about focus a lot in my articles and the things that I have said. Mm. Let's not lose focus on what pride is about. Right. And it is about the queer community. It is about the advances we have made since Stonewall. It's a celebration of who we are and all our variety. And it's also an acknowledgement that there is a lot of work 
yet to be done. Yes. This is not a space for, you know, straight cisgender people to come in and say, well, I think, and it's not saying you can't party with us, but again, don't talk over us. Don't try to twist the purpose of the parade. Don't center yourself because it's not about you. Straight people have never systemically have uh, had to deal with any kind of prejudice simply for being straight right. or for being transgender. So don't talk over those of us who, who are not straight or, you know, who are, you know, so... Fall on the spectrum. Yeah, yeah. fall on the gender spectrum. Um, again, another contributor to Typed Out, Raymond Miller, he put something up on his Instagram that I thought was great. And it was like Stonewall was never about marriage equality. It was about police brutality. Mm-hmm. And the people at the front of that were people of color, trans people of color. This is a whole other episode, several episodes, maybe a workbook (laughs) about how even the gay rights movement has been whitewashed and adopted by the majorly white community. Again, it's uncomfortable, y'all. These things are uncomfortable. But if we don't lean into that discomfort, we will never solve the problems. I think the Stonewall movie tanked because they whitewashed it. And it's such a shame, too, because that story needs to be told. Yeah. But you have this, you know, have the cisgender white male protagonist, what you call like the white savior narrative. Mm-hmm. And people were like, are you serious? No mention of Marsha P. Johnson. And Sylvia Rivera. Yeah, yeah. N- none of that. And I don't think that film made it past a month in theaters. And that was the reason. Right. As we know, this is an exhaustive subject like we could go this is like part one of like a part 50 series but jazz and spencer will be back in february to help us celebrate black history month any final thoughts on mr martin luther king dr martin luther king jr he was a visionary he was an amazing man i believe that as people we need to carry on his dream as our dream and to just push on and to create change within ourselves and throughout the world, not just America, but throughout the world, because the world also still deals with a lot of racism. There are those who like to talk about it, and there are those who like to be about it. Mm -hmm. And I think he fell in both categories. Mm -hmm. He was very aware that his days were numbered. Mm -hmm. He said as much, I may not make it to the mountaintop with you. you know, he knew. He's like, there's no way they're going to allow me with my message to continue to live. But I hope that my words will resonate with you and with future generations. And they certainly resonate with me. Mm-hmm. I hope that we can take his lessons and continue to apply them for a better tomorrow. Mm-hmm. And that, that's my hope. Yeah. And black is beautiful. It absolutely is. <laughs> so... Jazz, Spencer, thank you both so much for, one, your contribution to Typed Out. I truly, truly appreciate it. And for also coming to have this conversation with me today. For everyone listening, I hope that things have been expanded. You know, I just hope that you feel a little bit more enlightened after this conversation. And I hope you feel encouraged to go out and do your own research and see how... Read a book. Yes. (laughs) Yes. Like becoming, um, for starters. (laughs) But truly... I hope you feel enlightened and encouraged to go out and start being an active participant in this world that we live in. We will see you next week on Tuesday. But before we go, I would like to leave you with this message from Dr. Martin Luther King. Don't allow anybody to pull you so low as to make you hate them. Don't allow anybody to cause you to lose 
your self-respect to the point that you do not struggle for justice. However young you are, you have a responsibility to seek to make your nation a better nation in which to live. You have a responsibility to seek to make life better for everybody. And so you must be involved in the struggle for freedom and justice. Now in this struggle for freedom and justice, there are many constructive things that we all can do and that we all must do. And we must not give ourselves to those things which will not solve our problems. You've heard the word nonviolent and you've heard the word violent. I happen to believe in nonviolence. We struggle with this method with young people and adults alike all over the South, and we have won some significant victories, and we've got to struggle with it all over the North because the problems are as serious in the North as they are in the South. But I believe as we struggle with these problems, we've got to struggle with them with a method that can be militant, but at the same time does not destroy life or property. And so our slogan must not be burn, baby, burn. It must be build, baby, build. Organize, baby, organize. Yes, our slogan must be learn, baby, learn, so that we can earn, baby, earn. And with a powerful commitment, I believe that we can transform dark yesterdays of injustice into bright tomorrows of justice and humanity. Let us keep going toward the goal of selfhood, toward the realization of the dream of brotherhood, and toward the realization of the dream of understanding goodwill. Let nobody stop us. I close by quoting once more the man that the young lady quoted, that magnificent black bard who has now passed on, Langston Hughes. One day he wrote a poem entitled Mother to Son. And the mother didn't always have her grammar right, but she uttered words of great symbolic profundity. Well, son, I'll tell you, Life for me ain't been no crystal stat. It's had tax in it. Boards torn up, places with no carpet on the floor, bare. But all the time, I's been a climbing on and reaching landings and turning corners and sometimes going in the dark where there ain't been no light. So boy, don't you stop now. Don't you sit down on the steps cause you finds this kind of hard, but I'm still going, boy. I'm still climbing, and life for me ain't been no crystal stair. Well, life for none of us has been a crystal stair, but we must keep moving.
we must keep going. If you can't fly, run. If you can't run, walk. If you can't walk, crawl, but by all means, keep moving. Thank you.